0: Luke chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 59 today. We are continuing in our study. If you've been here the first uh, several weeks, at the beginning of this study, you know the t- study's titled Blessed Assurance, and we get that title from verse 4 of chapter 1, uh, where we discover the, really the theme of the book, the purpose for which the book was written. There in verse 4, chapter 1, Luke says, that you may know the certainty of those things... In which you were instructed, and and so here in Luke chapter one, and again in chapter two, we see this certainty—the certainty of our faith. Uh, we see it played out in parallel stories of God's faithfulness. Uh, we see God's faithfulness to Zacharias and Elizabeth uh, to give them the son that they desperately prayed for, and we see God's faithfulness to all of mankind to give us the son that we desperately. Need And as the last two weeks have gone, uh, we've looked at the promises that were given by the angel of Gabriel, uh, sent from God, the promises given, um, and the the next two weeks, starting this morning, we're going to be looking at those promises fulfilled. And so we pick it up now, verse uh, 57 um, of Luke chapter 1, we read, now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered... And she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. Now this is the fulfillment of the angel Gabriel's message to them. Back in verse 14, the angel Gabriel having showed up, talking to Zacharias, talking to Elizabeth, this a very old couple who've been praying for, for a, a child their entire lives, long since having given up on, on asking the Lord, uh, just figuring, man, that ship is sailed, this is not going to happen, God's no uh, is for whatever reason, we don't understand it, we're heartbroken by it, and then the angel shows up and says, guess what, your prayers have been heard, and he, he tells them in verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And so what we're seeing now is the beginning of the fulfillment of that. The child delivered and the neighbors there, the family, the friends, the relatives, they're, they're, they're all there and they, they see this and they're glorifying God. They, they, uh, they, they saw this mercy that God had given to them And just praising God, glorifying God, specifically saying they rejoiced with her. That word rejoice, it means to be genuinely glad for. It means to take delight in. And you can imagine, if you were there, one of her neighbors, one of her friends, seeing her her whole life, (coughs) wanting children and not having them, you can imagine how glad, how happy you would be for them and rejoicing. And that word rejoice, it carries with it an element of worship. Not just rejoicing in the event, but you're celebrating the one through whom this blessed event uh, has come. Clearly it's a miracle. You're an old woman, you're an old man, you're pregnant, you give birth to a healthy son. It's miraculous. And, And so you've got this attitude of worship. In his commentary, William Barclay talks about the custom of the day. And he said, when any child was born, he said, when the time of the birth was near at hand, friends and local musicians gathered near the house. And when the birth was announced and it was a boy, the musicians broke into song and there was universal congratulations and rejoicing. And, and you can imagine all the more here because it, it is indeed, as we've said, miraculous. And, and it's, it's, it's a cause for worship. Um, and it underscores something fundamental about mankind. And that is that we have this fundamental need within us for community. We have a fundamental need for community. And because we have that fundamental need for community, it plays itself out, especially in certain events like this. When something great happens in your life, what do you want to do? You want to tell people about it, don't you? Something great happens? It's like, man, I want to, I want to tell people about what just happened. I want us to participate together and, and and glorify God together with what's happened. It reminds me of a story I heard of a pastor who decided that he was going to play hooky from church. He, he called in sick. He wasn't sick, but he just decided, well, I'm just going to tell him I'm sick. And then to make matters worse, he decided he was going to go golfing, and he was going to hop the fence and not pay to, to, to golf. So he hops the fence of a local golf course, and, you know, as these stories go, uh, the, the you know, whoever it is, St. Peter says to the Lord, well, are you going to let him get away with this? God's like, don't worry, I got this covered. So, so he, he tees up for the, for the hole there, hits a hole in one. Peter's like, how's that, you know, taking care of it? He goes, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Next hole, he tees up again, hits another hole in one. And at this point, St. Peter's like, well, what on earth? How are you teaching him a lesson? He's like, who's he going to tell? <laughs> right? And the thing is, when we have good news, man, we want to celebrate. And the reason is, it's because God's wired us for community. And, and we need one another. Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Right? And, and his answer was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now he throws out a freebie. He says, and the second is like it. I won't just answer your question, what's the greatest commandment? I'll tell you what the two greatest commandments are. Second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, what what Jesus is saying there is that God's created us for loving community with him and with one another. We looked at this when we went through our value series. Talked about this important connectedness of unity. And this is why we encourage you as, as a participatory member of the church, hey, just don't come here on Sunday. You just, you're getting ripped off if that's your only part of, of connection to the body of Christ. Let your roots go deep. Get plugged into a midweek fellowship, you know, midweek Bible study, and, and start you know, fostering relationships with people here at the church so that you can grow together in community and you can encourage one another and support one another. Romans 12, 15 tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep, and this only happens in the context of community. Galatians 6, 2 says that we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so what we're seeing here, we're seeing this community, they're celebrating together with Zacharias and with Elizabeth, and no doubt they've been weeping with Elizabeth as she, you know, for all those years that she couldn't bear a child. And, And just in the context of... Community. And so it was, we continue, verse 59 on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. And his mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. Let's do a little bit of housekeeping here. First of all, this idea of circumcision. Circumcision on the eighth day was a ceremony that was prescribed in Leviticus chapter 12 and it actually has roots that go back before that, and we'll talk about that in a second. But in Leviticus 12, here's what the Lord says. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If a woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son, she will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her menstrual period. On the eighth day... The boy's foreskin must be circumcised. After waiting 33 days, she will be purified from the bleeding of childbirth. And during this time of purification, she must not touch anything that is set apart as holy. And she must not enter the sanctuary until her time of purification is over. Now that sounds weird, but the key to understanding this ceremony is to understand the the idea of original sin. That everyone in the world are sinners by nature and by choice, right? And, and so as wonderful as a newborn baby is, God wants it to be remembered that with every birth another sinner is brought into the world. The psalmist said this, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, when the psalmist wrote this, he's not suggesting that his mom went out and shacked up with someone and there was something adverse to, you know, her pregnancy or that there was something, you know, nefarious about about what went down. It's not that at all. Basically, what he's acknowledging is that we are sinners by nature and by choice. What he's saying is that we are born as sinners and that we live our lives as sinners and for that reason the mother was considered ceremonially unclean and she had to wait to go into the temple to worship God uh, because she was symbolically responsible for bringing another sinner into the world. Now understand, this commanded time of ceremonial impurity, it's not a negative attitude towards birth or towards childbearing on God's part. This is not God saying, that's bad, you shouldn't do that. No, quite the opposite. We read throughout the scriptures, God's pro-family. He's pro-children. Starts in Genesis 128 when he commands us, be fruitful and multiply. He's all about that. Psalm 127 verse 3 tells us that children are regarded as a gift from God. Psalm 128 3 says that a woman with many kids is considered to be blessed. And of course, we know this pregnancy in particular that this was a supernatural, ordained, blessed work of God. But the point is, is that because of sin, everyone is born with a sin nature, and everyone is in need of redemption. And so for that reason, ceremonially, symbolically, the woman has to wait, because she is ceremonially impure, And then you have this issue of circumcision. Now, let's talk about that. Circumcision, child circumcision was was ordained. It was required eight days after the child was born. And this goes back to a covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And as a matter of fact, Circumcision goes back to a promise that he made in, verse, in chapter 15, even before that. He instituted the, the covenant of, of uh, this, this issue of circumcision in chapter 17. But in chapter 15, what happened was God showed up. Abraham, at that time, he's an old man, his wife Sarah, old lady. Uh, another scenario where they don't have kids. And, and God shows up and he promises them that he's going to give them a son. And, and that, you know, that through their son, the nations are gonna be blessed. And he tells Abraham, look, I'm gonna multiply your descendants more than all the stars in the sky. And and Abraham is is blown away. He's like, wow, this is incredible. Sarah hears the news and she laughs about it. She's like, yeah, right, that's gonna happen, you know, kind of thing. Well, it it, it was gonna happen. God gave him this promise. So what happens then is that So often, like with us, when God gives us a promise, we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And so they're waiting for God, and and God is not moving fast enough for them. So Sarah gets a bright idea. She goes to Abraham, she says, hey, listen, I've I've got this handmaid named Hagar, and why don't you hook up with her, use her as a surrogate, and we get a child through her. And Abraham, being a man, says, well, okay, Right, And so they, he goes ahead and, and does that, and Ishmael is born. Well, God shows up, and God's like, no, that's, that's not exactly what I had in mind. He corrects Abraham, um, because what Abraham was doing was he was trying to fulfill in the flesh and in the power of, of his own efforts what God had promised and what only God could do. And so in Genesis 17, God shows up. Here's what he says to Abraham He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I, and notice all that God says, reinforcing through this, he says, I, me, I'm the one that's gonna do. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. This is my covenant, uh, he goes on to say, which you shall keep. Um and well, he says, uh, My covenant between me and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and your descendants after you. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He was is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. See, what God does here with Abraham is he shows up and he says, all right, I gave you a promise and you trusted me for the promise, but when I took too long, basically you took matters into your own hand and thought that you would fulfill the promise yourself. So what does God do to, to give him this lesson that he's gonna do it? He, he says, and let me put this as delicately as I can, let me take that thing that you tried to fulfill my promise with And I'm going to give you a painful lesson that it's not going to be executed through you. It's going to be executed through me. And so this is the symbol, the sign of that covenant that God makes with him, this everlasting covenant. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to do this work. So here in Luke chapter 1, the child, John the Baptist, promised to Zachariah and Elizabeth, he is now circumcised on the eighth day as was the custom. And as well, the the custom included that when you would do this, that the child would take the name of the father. And so that's what they say here. They're like, you know, well, he's Zacharias' kid, so we suppose his name's going to be Zacharias. That's what you would do in the eighth day. You'd give him a name as well. And Elizabeth tells him, no, he's going to be called John. Why? Well, because this is what Gabriel told her back in verse 13. He says, guess what, old woman? You're going to have a child, and you're going to name him John. So she's, she's all about obeying God. She says, he's going to be John. But now the people, they push back. They protest, verse 61. But they said to her, there's, there's no one among your relatives who's called by this name. So, so they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he, uh, Zacharias, asked for a writing tablet and he wrote saying, his name is John. And so they all marveled and immediately his mouth was open, speaking of Zacharias, and his tongue loosed and he spoke, praising God. And then fear came all on all who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea and all those who heard them. Kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of a child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And so they make signs to Zacharias. You'll recall there in verse 20 when Gabriel came with the news that, Hey, guess what, old man, you're going to have a child. And he was just overwhelmed, dumbfounded. And he was doubtful in his response. He's like, How can this possibly happen? Like, there's no way. And, and so what the angel did was, well, uh, it is going to happen and you're going to lose your voice now. You can't speak. And, and so this, this whole thing goes down. Now, what's interesting to me is they make signs to Zacharias. I, there's no indication in the text that he couldn't hear, just that, that God took away his voice. But they're treating him as though he's deaf and dumb. And so they're making signs to him like hey do you know what do you, what do you think here well he can hear them and and so <clears throat> he says hey let me let me have this thing he writes down his name is John now as soon as he confirmed the lord's directive as soon as he said look his name's going to be John that's an expression of faith as soon as he he wrote that down it says here that God opened his voice and that word opened is very uh, particular word it's a transitive verb And and the idea is that it's a transition to what comes next. I would illustrate it this way. A transitive verb is the equivalent of when you open a gate, it's a transition to what comes next. What comes next is that you actually walk through the gate. And so this is a transitive verb in that God opened his mouth because God wanted him to speak, right? Now, again, the angel had silenced him, but now it's all changed. Why? Because he has faith. And so now, God opens his voice for what comes next, and what comes next is his praising of God. Now, there's a point of application here for us today, and that point of application is this, that when we believe God by faith, he opens a gate for us to speak as well. God wants you, and he wants me, to be those people who will live missionally, and living missionally doesn't necessarily mean you sell everything you own, you move to Africa to live on the mission field. No, what it means is very similar to what a gal once told a friend of mine. Uh, she, she, she told him that she was a missionary. He says, wow, where, you're a missionary where? She said, Target. She worked for Target, and she considered that you know she was just a missionary. We're supposed to live missional lives, and what that means is that we are faithful To share our faith with others. We're faithful to tell people about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, now that freaks a lot of people out. It's like, you know, this idea of of preaching the gospel. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to make disciples of all nations. The Great Commission is that we are supposed to share our faith and share Jesus Christ with others. By, By the life that you live and by the words that you speak. Here's what Jesus told his disciples in Luke's gospel, Luke 12, verses 11 and 12. He said, Now when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus says, Look, when when you have the opportunity to speak for God, to glorify God, to share your faith, to witness to give a testimony of what God's done in your life, don't stress out about it. Don't worry about it. Just be faithful. In that moment of opportunity, trust the Lord. He'll give you the words to say. And this is exactly what we see here in verse 64. His mouth is opened, and it says there that his tongue is loosed. And the idea of that phrase is that there's a supernatural component to it. There's this supernatural component that, that his, his tongue is loosed. How do we know that? Well, verse 65 tells us fear came upon the people. It's a godly fear. And, and the idea here is that as, that as Zacharias speaks, this is, this is a supernatural anointing of God upon his tongue just to, to anoint the words that he would speak. I'll illustrate it this way. I went to um, the Harvest Crusade several years ago with Pastor Kyle. It was his first time ever going. He'd heard a lot about, you know, Pastor Greg Laurie and the Harvest Crusade and the whole thing. And he, we brought, you know, a bunch of kids from the youth group and had a, yeah, a whole group going. We had people there that, you know, the invitation was give, the message was given, the invitation was given. Thousands of people responding, just flocking out of the stands onto the field. Some of our group were working as decision follow-up counselors when they were down on the field and so on. So the event's winding up and we're, we're now walking out of the stadium and Kyle turns to me. First time he's ever heard Greg Laurie, and he he goes, "That was it." And, and and he's like, "That that that was I was expecting like you know some super you know incredible message." He goes, "That that it was that was just kind of I can't remember his exact words. Kind of like that was sort of weak message or whatever. You know, it's just he was unimpressed, right?" And, and I go, dude, here's what you need to understand. He could have stood up there and recited the ABCs. Thousands of people would have come forward. It's not about great glory. It's about the Spirit of the Lord being upon him and anointing the, the message that, that, that he speaks. It's funny, after first service, uh, Kyle's papa came up to talk to me, and he said, I felt the exact same way when I went to see Billy Graham. He said, I thought, well, that's it? And with thousands of people going forward. Why? Because it's the Lord doing that work. And so the Lord does that work through Zechariah. He will do that work through you. You just have to trust and be willing to be an ambassador for Christ, to live missionally, to have the, the courage to invite your neighbors to come to a Christmas service. There's an opportunity to share your faith in various circles. And just trust the Lord to fill your mouth. Now, what follows in the next several verses, verses 67 through 80, is that the Holy Spirit is going to give us an account of what Zacharias said. Because verse 64 just tells us that his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed and he spoke praising God. So in, in verses 67 through 80, what we're going to see is the text of, of what he said when he praised God. Now understand, just leading up to us reading this, that the Lord has been silent for 400 years. Up until this point. The last time the Lord spoke was in Malachi chapter 4. And so it's been 400 years since since the Lord has spoken to the people. And so they've been waiting for 400 years for the fulfillment of the prophecies that were given. And to hear from God again. And so here now Zacharias speaks. And he gives to us, if you're taking notes, a message of hope with five promises. Five promises in this message of hope. And so we see, first of all, in verse 68, a prison door opened. That's his first promise. It says, now, Zacharias, verse 67, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So the first promise that's given there is that a prison door has been opened. That word redeemed in verse 68, literally it means to set free by paying a price. And it can refer to the releasing of a prisoner or it can refer to the liberating of a slave. And in the context of Christians, really, it, it, it's both. In Romans 12, 6, it makes it clear that without Christ, that we are slaves to sin. And Paul told Timothy that unbelievers have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. And so when, when Zacharias is proclaiming that we have been redeemed, he's saying, hey, you've been set free by the price that's going to be paid by the Messiah. This is what he is proclaiming here, this supernatural word from God. Those that have been in bondage and enslaved to sin, man, you're going to be set free those that have been held prisoner by the enemy, you're going to be set free. By the way, this is Jesus' message when he goes to Nazareth, and we're gonna read in Luke chapter four. He goes to Nazareth, he goes to the temple there. Well, let me just read it to you. It says, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah And when he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and then he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him and he, Jesus, began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's the promise to you and me today as well. That, hey, listen, because of Jesus, man, he's preaching the gospel to the poor. And and, and he's healing the brokenhearted. He's liberating captives. He's giving the recovery of sight to the blind, those who are spiritually blind. Jesus does this work. He sets at liberty those who are oppressed and and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And this is the good news for us, that we have this promise that a prison door has been opened. And maybe today, you know, you're imprisoned in sin. Maybe, maybe you're imprisoned by the lies that the enemy has told you. And you need to hear the good news of the gospel. That yes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And so this is Zechariah's first proclamation by the Spirit of the Lord. He's hold- and, and by the way, think about this moment. This is a holy moment. You dads, do you remember the first time you held your child? Your first child, I remember, it, I was, it blew my mind. It, 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 like, messed me up. I'm holding my daughter. And I'm thinking, you know, my wife had, had this baby in her belly for nine months. And, yeah, I got to feel her kick and move and talk to her through my wife's belly and stuff. But when she was born and I, and I held my daughter for the first time, that's a holy moment. That, that is a mind-blowing moment And here is Zechariah. Now, multiply that. You're an old man, and this child has been given to you miraculously. Can you imagine the emotions running through that guy's veins? And what does he do? The very first thing, he starts talking about the promises of God that the prison door has been opened, right? Next, he gives a second promise of a battle won. We see it there in verses 69 through 75. He says, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, he's not talking about his child. He's talking about Jesus, the Messiah, who is to come. Notice where his focus is. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and, and from the hand of all who hate us. He's talking about this horn, and the, the the picture of a horn is that of power. Power for what? Power for deliverance. And he's painting a picture here of being surrounded by enemies, which is who we are on the earth apart from a redeeming Savior Christ. We live in, a, in an enemy-occupied territory. And he's basically saying that... Because of Jesus who is to come, we're going to be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and in righteousness before him all the days of our lives. The picture here is of a battle won that this battle because of the person and the work of Christ is won. And, and basically, whereas in the first promise, he's talking about how the captives are set free, what he's talking about here is that now the enemy's defeated and so we can't take any more prisoners. And so, yeah, not only are those who he's imprisoned been, been taken captive to do his will and he set them free, but now once he sets you free, whom the sun sets free... Is free indeed. And so you're, you're not only set free, but you're going to stay free, is the idea. And now he goes on and he gives the third promise. He talks about a debt canceled. We see that in verses 76 and 77. He, he turns his attention to his son. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest For you will go before his face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. Here it is, by the remission of their sins. That word remission literally means to send away and to dismiss as a debt. And the Bible says that all of mankind owes a debt to God because of sin that we can never repay. The psalmist said this, He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. You might recall a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18. He talked about parables, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It basically says there's this king and there's, a, there's this cat that owes him like, you know, five lifetimes worth of debt. And he, and he says, look, you can't pay me, I'm going to throw you in prison. And the guy begs, please, please forgive me, give me time, I'll pay it back. You've never lived long enough to pay it back. But the king has mercy on him. He says, you know what, I'll cancel your debt. Forget it, you're forgiven. And then this guy goes out, runs into somebody else who owes him basically the equivalent of a day's wages. And he's like, you need to pay me back. And that guy does the same thing. Please, please, forgive me. Give me time. I can repay. Now, he could, if given the time, repay him. But this guy's like, no, forget it. You're getting, you're getting thrown in prison. Well, word gets back to the king. He's like, oh, that's how you want to play it? Fine. Now you get to go to prison. And the picture that Jesus is painting is this, our needfulness to, to offer forgiveness. That's the context of of the lesson but the bigger picture behind that is just how much you and I have been forgiven in Christ and and so what Zechariah is proclaiming here this third promise that he's proclaiming is that the Messiah who is to come is going to cancel the debt that you have all have sinned the bible says and fall short of the, w- the glory of god and the wages of sin the debt that you owe is your life And Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place, offers forgiveness to us. And so this debt that has been canceled, incredible. Now, Zacharias gives the fourth promise there in verses 78 and 79 of a new day dawned, of a new day that has dawned. He says this, through the tender mercy of our God, what, the remission of sins? Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now that word dayspring is an interesting word. Literally, it means sunrise. And what he's proclaiming here is this promise that, hey, this is the dawning of a new day. It is all all new when the Messiah comes. And that that dawning of a new day is that the Messiah is going to bring us light and life and peace. Do you have that today? Because that's what's available to us in Christ Jesus. And so that's the fourth promise. And the fifth and final promise that Zacharias ends with, he also adds the result. He gives us the fifth promise and then the result of all of these things in verse 80. So verses 76 to 77 is the the fifth promise and then the result. He says, and you child, looking at his son now, you will be called the prophet of the highest for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. And verse 80, the promise, so the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Give me your attention here as we draw to a close and I bring this home to application for us. I want to talk to every parent here and in particular I want to talk to you dads. We want the best for our kids. We when we are blessed to have children, we want everything for them that that we either had or even didn't have or whatever it is, we just want the best for our kids. And so here, Zacharias, as he's holding this child, this child of his old age, this promised child, this miracle child, you have to know that his heart is bursting with the promise for who God said he was going to be. Because God says, this guy's going to be amazing. And his job in life is to to proclaim the coming Messiah. The one who Israel has been waiting for. The one who the world longs for. And your son gets to tell everybody about him. Your son's got the most important job to give him to any man. And that's to point to Jesus and say, here he comes. And he's got all this joy, all this desire for his son's future. But I want you to notice that the first words that Zacharias talks about isn't all about his son. Not saying, look at my son. He's going to be amazing. Look at all this stuff that he's going to be doing. No, Zacharias' first Concern is the proclamation of the goodness of God. And I'll simply say this. Parents make a huge mistake when they elevate their children and place them on an altar and they worship them. We make a critical mistake when our child becomes King Farouk and everything in life is all oriented about that child. And here... A week before Christmas, we need to understand that our heart's attitude where our children are concerned, yes, thank God for them. Yes, I'll walk through fire for them. Yes, I want everything good for them. Yes, I want to lavish them with gifts. But first, Jesus is first. We glorify Him. We honor Him. We point to Him. It's not all about sacrificing in the altar of this child. It's about worshiping and proclaiming the one who is to come, who's giving this child meaning. That's the idea. See, what Zacharias maintains here is perspective. He, he, he worships, he, Jesus is the power of our salvation. Jesus is the one who saves us from our enemies. Jesus is the one to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. Jesus is the one to remember the covenant that, that God the Father made with us. Jesus is the one who makes us able to serve him without shame, without fear. And it's only, parents, after we settle that, only after we magnify him, that our life has any significance, that our children's life have any significance. It's in light of Jesus, and it's in light of his lordship. Look, God hasn't delivered us so that the focus can be on us and can be on our kingdom. He hasn't given you kids so that the focus can be on them and King Farouk and their little kingdom. No, what God has done, he saved us for the purpose that we might glorify him, that we might magnify him, and his plans for your children come after submission to that. Paul told the Corinthians this. He said, For you were bought at a price... Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's.